Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 115 to 120. There's a lot of history here that's important for Latter-day Saints to understand. Do you remember when you were young and you just thought your life would be a continuously growing line of happiness and success? And then what life really is is a series of ups and downs, wonderful ups, followed by a few challenging downs. Well, it's interesting that the Lord allowed church history to follow that same pattern. So we just saw the Kirtland period where there was tremendous prosperity. We were dedicating the Kirtland Temple. Jesus came. Marvelous angelic visitors came. Many people saw visions and felt incredible glory and power. And now just a few short months or years later, Joseph's going to be in prison. We find ourselves in the middle of a war with the Missourians. So like our lives, this is a pattern of ups and downs, and I think it behooves each one of us as Latter-day Saints to know that history and to recognize that there were periods of prosperity and there were periods of pain. And we can choose humility in prosperity or we can choose pride. We can choose humility in pain or we can choose pride. And it's fascinating to read church history and recognize that each one of these periods leads to a legacy of who we are today. So most of our podcast today is going to be the history of the Missouri period and the Mormon war that occurs there. And you know, Bryce, the fundamental question is, well, why is Joseph Smith in jail? And so the events here in these sections really do lead to the things that we'll be covering in section 121. So let's go back to the time period in Kirtland. When things were good. Yeah, back when things were good. After the temple was constructed, between July and August of 1836, as was discussed in section 111, Joseph and Sidney Hiram and Oliver leave to Massachusetts, and one of the purposes of them leaving is to go to acquire funding for the debts that the church has incurred. And while they're gone, the church is becoming more wealthy. There's more people coming to Kirtland. And also at this time, in the summer of 1836, many saints are settling in far west. A lot of the things we're going to be talking about in this podcast would be helpful if you looked at a map. There's a really good map from the book Fire and Sword by Leland Gentry and Todd Compton. To me, it's the best one because it just covers the events and it even has pictures to indicate where some of the turmoil is happening. So I would encourage you to go and look at that. It's in the show notes. So the saints settled in the far west in 1836, and also later in 1836, Caldwell County is created. Which is kind of Missouri's answer for the Mormons, is all these other counties were getting nervous. So we went into Jackson County, and we made the Jackson County saints nervous, and so they kicked out the the saints. We go into Clay County, and now all of a sudden the Clay County Missourians are nervous about so many Mormons coming in. Because think about that. That changes your elections. That changes political power. That changes so many things. And in Missouri, that was a pro-slavery state— with a question mark on it, 
their pro-slavery status is conditional. Now all of a sudden that becomes an issue. And so Missouri's solution to all of this is let's create a county where the Mormons can go and, and settle. And let's just basically say, go here. If you're going to live in Missouri, go here so that no one else has to worry about the imbalance between the Missourians and the Mormons. Yes, that's, that's a perfect explanation. Now, in January of 1837, the Kirtland Safety Society opens. The saints in Ohio want to form a bank so that they can take the, the things that they have that are not liquid. They land have and land, the, and it's hard to go to the grocery store and spend your land. you oh, got to have cash. Yeah, but the bank does collapse. The bank does fail. There's an overarching financial collapse in Ohio, and many banks collapse. This was not unique to the situation of the saints, but many people blame Joseph Smith. All this is happening in the spring and summer of 1837. The panics in May, in July, Joseph Smith resigns from working with the bank. In August of 1837, a group of men called the Old Standard start causing problems in Kirtland. Uh, Some of those are John F. Boynton and Warren Parrish and others, David Whitmer. And we talked about that last time, but it's important to know that this is leading up to Joseph Smith leaving Kirtland. Many people often ask, why did Joseph Smith leave Kirtland? Well, part of it had to do with a group of saints in Kirtland who wanted to oust him. And, and they had their reasons. One of their reasons was they thought that perhaps Joseph had too much power. Some of them said that he was a fallen prophet, that he wasn't doing the things that they expected a prophet to do. This was the beginnings of plural marriage. This is not going to be as prevalent until we get to Nauvoo. We'll talk about some of this when we get to section 132, but the beginnings of this are in Kirtland, and so Oliver Cowdery starts to estrange himself from the prophet Joseph in 1837. And so during this time, when the old standard is causing problems, these individuals that want to oust him, Joseph Smith goes to far west. My thinking, Bryce, is he's going to far west, and I think he sees the writing on the wall. Yeah, Joseph saw a lot of these things coming. He saw the persecution in Jackson County coming. I wouldn't doubt for one second he saw the writing on the wall in Kirtland, and he went to join the saints in Missouri. Now, what's interesting is notice that Missouri was trying to build a temple, and Kirtland was trying to build a temple, and the Kirtland temple got built probably because Joseph was there. And I wonder if there's some underpinnings of Joseph saying, I need to go to Missouri because that's what we need to build up. We need to build up Zion. So a little of all of that going on, and Joseph says, I'm going. And he leaves Kirtland forever and then heads to Missouri. Yeah. Sometime between November and January 12th, Luke Johnson, who's a member of the old standard, he's a member of these groups that want to take Joseph Smith out. Luke comes to Joseph Smith and tells him that there's a plot on his life, that there are individuals that have decided that they're going to kill Joseph. So Joseph and Emma make the decision to leave Kirtland. On January 12th, 1838, Joseph Smith and Emma leave Kirtland never to return. They leave under cover of darkness, and there's lots of things going on when they leave because there's these tensions between individuals in Kirtland And some of these individuals feel like they've been wronged. They feel like they've been financially taken advantage of due to the collapse of the bank, and they're blaming Joseph. And so many of these are going to come to Missouri, and they're going to bring that spirit with them. And in the midst of Joseph leaving, he gets this revelation. 
Now, this revelation is not in the Doctrine and Covenants. This is an unpublished revelation that has not been canonized. But I think understanding this helps us to see the context of many of the decisions that Joseph's going to make and some of the speeches that will be given in Missouri. And I think it really does lend itself to understanding Joseph's position and what a tough thing this would have been for him. And this revelation is in the show notes. And here here it is, January 12th, 1838. You are clean from the blood of this people and woe unto those who have become your enemies, who have professed my name, saith the Lord. For their judgment lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. Let all your faithful friends arise with their families and get out of this place and gather themselves together unto Zion and be at peace among yourselves, O you inhabitants of Zion, or there shall be no safety for you. Even so, amen. That is prophetic because they're not going to be at peace and they're not going to be in safety. Now, just go back in time a little bit. Do you remember the parable the Lord gave about Jackson County and being at variance with the prophet, and the church still hasn't learned that lesson. The relationship between church and prophet is critical if we're going to succeed in Zion and build Zion. And once again, we've got the underpillings of, he's just a man, he makes mistakes, he's not divine, I don't have to follow him. I wonder if as we study Come, Follow Me, we're learning that lesson. And we're making the connections between the periods of church history when they were at variance with the prophet and the success of those time periods. We as Zion have to understand the critical relationship between church and prophet. Yeah. But here it comes into Missouri with him. Yeah, they're, they're following him into Missouri. And so he does. He settles in far west on March 14, 1838. And there were many dissenters who came into Missouri. The key ones from my reading of history are Oliver Cowdery, John Whitmer, David Whitmer, W.W. Phelps, and Lyman Johnson. And you can see their pictures in the show notes. These individuals come down and they settle in Missouri, and there's going to be some tension between them and Joseph, and they're going to be making accusations. And this podcast would be so much better if Joseph could sit and talk to us and tell us what's going on in, in his mind, and we don't know. But from reading of history and some of the sermons that are given, what I see happening is this. I see Joseph in this really difficult position. The very people who are threatening him are following him to Missouri. And so I can, I can see Joseph wrestling with this, trying to figure out, what am I to do about this? Can we ever have peace? I want to build Zion. I want to have unity. And the Lord tells me, if we don't have unity, we're not going to be safe. And then I also see Joseph having the necessity to remove himself from culpability if something should go wrong. We're going to see other people do things to try to fix the situation about the dissenters. And sometimes I think Joseph is quite knowledgeable of these things. And other times I think Joseph was not aware of some of the extreme things that they were doing, but the dissenters are causing problems and Joseph wants to have Zion. And so he's got this tension and this tension just increases and increases over the course of time. So it's March of 1838. By the end of 1838, we'll see the catastrophic results. So in March, when he settles, we get this revelation in section 115. Now, the amazing thing is there's a dark cloud over this time period, and yet listen to the Lord's words in 115. 
They are positive. They're upbeat, a land of milk and honey. And I think we need to remember that, that that yes, there's going to be difficult times, but with the Lord's help, we can really get through them. The thing that I love most about section 115 is that the Lord names his church. He put the name on us. Now, allow me to just pause in the history just a little bit and talk about the significance of that. I have a sweet little grandson who is just adorable as can be, and he's in first grade, and he comes home with a love note every single day from a different girl that loves him and wants him to be hers, and it drives him crazy because he doesn't want to be with any of them. So sometimes we have this idea that the church is one of those girls that wants Jesus to like him. We send love notes to Jesus, and would you please be our God? Would you please love us? Would you please be with us? That is a very different situation than God putting his name on us. I love that God named the church. Thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He put his name on us. Much like a groom traditionally puts his name on the bride and says, I I'm going to spend the rest of my life taking care of you, watching out for you, loving you, protecting you, being with you, holding your hand. A groom says, take my name and we will be together and we will be one. And this is Jesus doing that with his church. It's fascinating to me that we get the name of Christ put upon us in Missouri at a dark period of our history when so many things are challenging our faith, the Lord is simply saying, don't forget that this is my church. Yeah. Personally, for me, I grew up in California where I didn't like being called a Mormon. That wasn't something that I liked. I think it gave people the impression that I didn't believe in Jesus. And I had friends even ask me, do you believe in Jesus? And then I would have to do all this explanation of, yes, of course I believe in Jesus. We carry his name. Yeah. I also like, Bryce, how verse 5 and 6, it seems to be a shift that the church is to rise and shine forth and that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense. There's this shift where we're going from gathering to the center stake to now we're gathering to stakes. And then later, after we're cast out of Missouri, the Lord tells them, you know, your sacrifice is sufficient and we'll gather where we need to gather. And so I see today we gather in stakes where we live. If you live in Mexico City, you gather there. Yeah. Now, another thing on this that's interesting is the Lord says in verses 8 through 16 that they're to build a house. And remember, the saints are gathering in far west. And he says, you're to build a house and you're to start in July. That's verse 10. And then in one year, you're going to like recommence laying the foundation And so that's going to be in April of 1839. Now, what the people don't know is they're not going to be in Missouri. And Joseph will be in prison. Yeah. Just barely getting out of prison in April of 39. So we're going to fast forward briefly to 1839 when they're to lay the cornerstones. So in April of 1839, the saints are scattered. They've gone to Illinois. We've had the Mormon War of 1838, and we're not allowed in Missouri. The governor has basically said, we're going to kill you if you're here. So... The question that they have at the time 
is, are we going to follow this revelation? Are we going to, verse 11, in one year from this day, let them recommence laying the foundation of my house? I mean, the revelation is very specific in section 115, one year from this day, and the date is April 26th. And Brigham Young, as the presiding member of the Quorum of the Twelve, gathered together the apostles, and he says, you know, what do you guys think? So after they counseled together, Wilfred Woodruff says, as the time drew nigh for the accomplishment of the work, the question arose, what's to be done? Here is a revelation commanding the Twelve to be in Far West on the 26th day of April to lay the cornerstone of the temple there. It had to be fulfilled. The Missourians had sworn by all the gods of eternity that if every other revelation given through Joe Smith should be fulfilled, this one would not be. For the day and date being given, they declared, would fail. The general feeling in the church, so far as I know, was that under the circumstances, it was impossible to accomplish the work. And the Lord would accept the will for the deed. And so what happened? Uh, you know, as they counseled, Brigham Young said, you know what, we're going to do it. We're going to go and, and we're going to fulfill the revelation. So they did. They walked all the way down and under cover of darkness early in the morning, they set the stones. Wilfred noted that they fulfilled section 115's command to begin laying the foundation for the temple. They rolled a large stone to the southeast corner site. And then Wilfred Woodruff sat on the stone as the apostles led by Brigham Young ordained him to be an apostle. And he's going to, under that apostolic call, go to England and preach the gospel. Another man who's there, uh, a young man by the name of George A. Smith, he's now 22 years old. He is ordained an apostle. And so each of the apostles prayed, and then Alpheus Cutler places the cornerstone, as Wilfred Woodruff put it, in consequence of the peculiar situation of the saints. He thought it wisdom to adjourn until some future time when the Lord should open the way, expressing his determination to proceed with the building. And so in other words, we're going to lay the stones and we're going to let the Lord decide when we build the temple. So as they're leaving, they come across W.W. Phelps. And W.W. Phelps, like many people in church history, is kind of a complicated person because W.W. Phelps at this time is estranged from the church, and he realizes that they fulfilled the command in section 115, and he uses disparaging words in letters as he describes the 12. And as I read these, it pulls at my heartstrings because I can sense his pain and his anger. And yet, W.W. Phelps comes back into full fellowship and does great things for the church. And so I see examples of a pendulum of his heart, where at this point in 1839 of April, he's estranged and he's so bitter, but then later he comes back. And if you read some of the things W.W. Phelps writes, he writes some things that are just so inspiring. And I see how the Lord can work with us. If you have somebody who's in a dark space, like W.W. Phelps was in 1839, it doesn't mean they're going to stay that way. We are not who we are on our worst day. And the reconciliation of W.W. Phelps and Joseph Smith is one of the most beautiful insights into Joseph's character. Joseph writes him a letter and says, Come, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. So even though there are some who estrange themselves from the church, they do return. And just like Jesus taught us in the parable of the wheat and the tares, you got to let everything grow together. It's not till the very end that we know what's a wheat and what's a tare. Yeah. So back to 115, as they come into Far West, Joseph is told, 
other places should be appointed as stakes in Zion round that area. So Joseph was specifically told that, hey, you've got a stake in far west, but we need other stakes round about. So that's going to send him over the next several months out and about. He's going to get up into Davies County. He's going to find Adam on Diamond, and that will now lead to section 116 as well. So the next intervening few months is Joseph trying to grow Zion by gathering stakes and creating stakes in nearby areas. Yeah. About 30 miles north of far west in Davies County, there's a place called Adam on Diamond. And that's where section 116 comes in. And it's really short and it reads as follows. Spring Hill is named by the Lord Adam on Diamond because, said he, it is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people or the Ancient of Days shall sit as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So Joseph now reveals that Adam on Diamond, this place where Adam's going to come and Jesus is going to come and we're going to talk about keys and histories and we're going to kind of culminate the whole earth experience. But I think we need to be careful that Spring Hill is not necessarily the location of the meeting, and it's not a specific spot, because if you go to section 117, the Lord says, isn't there room enough in the mountains of Adam on Diamond, or the plains where Adam dwelt? So the Lord identifies Missouri as part of the gathering area where Adam will appear and talks about the fact that Adam dwelt. The Garden of Eden must have been somewhere near Spring Hill, Missouri. And that made it really sacred ground. That made them feel like we are on sacred ground here in Missouri. I'm going to encourage you, the listener, to go to the show notes to read some of this because Hugh Nibley actually has quite a bit to say because you have that word Amon, which can mean God. And then he, in One Eternal Round and other books, he ties that into the Egyptian name for God, which is Amon. And I'm wondering, is that a cognate of Ammon in the Book of Mormon? These are just my questions that I have. We know Adam means Adam, but it also means man. Like in Hebrew, the the word Adam is the man. It's synonymous with man. And then Hugh Nibley takes Ondai and he kind of, he stretches a little bit and says it could be Ante, it could be Ante, which means in the presence. Hugh Nibley says, this is once again the new year right. This is the exchange of we're going to have a new representative. Adam's going to leave. We're going to have a new prince that's going to be the prince over the earth. And anciently, they're always doing this. And we read this coronation exchange in Mosiah 1 through 6, where Benjamin sits down. And so this is Hugh Nibley, where he just says, Adam on Diamond is significant because this is where we're acknowledging God that's going to be the prince over the earth. I, Bryce, I really like this stuff on Adam on Amon. I know that sometimes we may look a little silly to people when someone says, well, do you believe that Adam was in Missouri? And I, like when people ask me that, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where Adam lived. But again, in the Lord's language, he talks about the whole North and South American continent are the promised land. He talks about mountains and valleys yeah, of Adam yeah. on Diamond. There aren't a whole lot of mountains in that area. Long story short, they now establish a stake in Adamondiamon. So we've got a far west stake, we've got an Adamondiamon stake. So the church is growing in Missouri. More and more members of the church come out of Kirtland and start filling Missouri. That's going to make a lot of the Missourians nervous. 
and I think that's understandable. I think we need to just simply say, boy, if, if a group of people were to move into my neighborhood in mass numbers and there's elections for different political positions, I think we can understand why the Missourians are getting nervous. Now, one issue that we need to keep in our minds is the issue of slavery. Missouri had been declared an exception to the rules as a pro-slavery state to balance out Maine that came into the Union. So everyone knows that their pro-slavery status is conditional. And here comes thousands of Mormons. When Joseph Smith arrives in Far West, there's nearly 5,000 members of the church there. Now, we're going to do some things wrong. The Missourians are going to do some things wrong, and it's going to get really ugly. But this was a sacred place, and I love that the Lord just kind of pauses and says, let's expand, let's grow, and Joseph does that. And so, like Bryce said, as the saints are expanding, the people that live south in Jackson County and in another county called Ray County, specifically in a town called Richmond, there starts to be some rumblings about the the influx of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the Missourians are going to call the Mormons. As I read their writings, they don't refer to us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our enemies refer to us as Mormons. And Bryce, I think part of it is if we can dehumanize the enemy, they're easier to kill. And so during this time period, we get into some some difficult things. One of them is what's called the written resolution to the dissenters. And this is in June of 1838. And this is also the beginning of a group of people that will call themselves the Daughters of Zion, and then they'll change the name of their group to the Sons of Dan or the Danites. So the Daughters of Zion, or the Danites, as we're going to call them from here on out, are a group of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A little zealous. Let's let's be clear. They're a little zealous, Yeah. and we're going to purge, and we're going to clear out all the dissenters. Yeah, that's kind of their approach. We're going to take them out, and some of them in their meetings propose even killing them. And in these meetings, there's some individuals there that share what happens in these meetings because we have their writings. And one of them is a man by the name of John Coral that I'm very sympathetic to. I read John Coral's writings and I feel his spirit, his love for the gospel, but he also has this really unsettled feeling about some of the things the Danites are saying. These Danites, they don't take any action right away against the the dissenters. But then in June of 1838, Sidney Rigdon is going to preach what's known now today as the Salt Sermon. And in this speech that he gives, he denounces these dissenters that are in Missouri. And he compares them to the salt that Jesus spoke about in the Gospel of Matthew, that if the salt has lost its savor, it must be cast out and trotted under the feet of men. And so Sidney Rigdon accused these dissenters in Far West of seeking to overthrow the church and committing all kinds of crimes. And some people that heard him give it, according to some sources, they reported that Sidney Rigdon said, it would be good for us to just build gallows and be done with them. And although he doesn't say anybody by name, the, the members of the church there know who he's talking about. And that's pretty intense stuff. And then after he gave this talk, According to some sources, Joseph Smith stood up and said, that was a good sermon. Now, 
That's difficult. And so the next day, the Danites, they send a letter to the chief of the dissenters, warning them that the citizens of Caldwell County would no longer tolerate their abusive conduct. The letter, reportedly, we don't know who wrote it, but we think that perhaps Sidney Rigdon wrote it, was signed by 83 members of the church. And some of these names are significant. For example, Joseph Smith's brother and the counselor in the first presidency, Hiram Smith, signed the document, as well as Far West High Councilman George Pitkin and the Caldwell County Sheriff. And so after describing the many offenses allegedly committed by the dissenters, this letter that these members of the church wrote announced that the Mormons, quote, intended to drive them from the county. There are no threats from you, no fear of losing our lives by you, or by anything you can say or do will restrain us, this document said, for out of the county you shall go, and no power shall save you. So that's difficult. Uh, As a member of the church, I remember the first time I was introduced to the Missouri conflict, it was kind of presented like we did nothing wrong, and yet many members of this Danite community that are zealous and they're religious and they want to follow the prophet are pushing the envelope to me, they're crossing the line where they're saying, you have to get out. It's also ironic that the members of the church are going to be treated that way by the Missourians and, and cry foul. Yes. Well, you can't kick us out of Missouri because we're different than you, because we think different than you. And yet some members of the church had taken that very position within the church saying, you need to leave our county because you think differently than we do. Yeah. And I think this is one of those lessons of church history that we need to learn from. I love Moroni's reminder where he says, condemn me not for because of mine imperfections. And Mike and I are being very careful. We don't want to condemn the church. They did a lot of really good things in Missouri. They did. And the church has some innocence in all of this because they're being picked on for their religion. But in the spirit of Moroni's words, condemn me not because of mine imperfections. Rather, give thanks unto God that he hath made known unto you our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. This church, as we grow towards the second coming, we have to learn and be more wise than the Danites were in Missouri. You can't ask the Missourians to accept you if you're different from them and not accept the people who have dissented from you because they now think differently than you do. You can't live on both sides of that sword. You can't. So may we as a church rise up and be more wise than the Danites have been. And forgive Mike and I if we emphasize a little bit of the negative that happened in Missouri, because we're trying to help all church members recognize there's some lessons we need to learn from that, that some of the persecution we brought on ourselves. But let's be clear, the church did a lot of wonderful things in Missouri. Yeah, clearly. I mean, we're gathering people and we're trying to build Zion. And in the midst of this, Bryce, I also want to tip my hat to culture. You see, one of the ways they kept order in the 19th century in all kinds of cities, Boston and New York, was there were vigilantes kind of running around and making sure that people followed the rules. And Leland Gentry, Todd Compton, and Stephen LeSueur, and Max Parkin really put this in the context of the 19th century. And one of the things they refer to is this case in Vicksburg. In Vicksburg, there was this big problem with gambling, and so 
some of the leaders of the city came out and they said, hey, listen, and they posted this and they told everybody, hey, listen up. If you guys are going to be gamblers in this city, you got to clear out. And if you don't, we're going to get you. And most of the gamblers cleared out, but some of them didn't. They're like, we're just going to keep doing it. And they put up a gallows and they hung those guys. I mean, we don't do that in 2021. But but that was the culture back then. That's kind of what happened. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just trying to understand it, right? And so- these are the words of Sidney Rigdon. And as I read them, I'm like, this sounds like Governor Boggs. So before Governor Boggs ever signs the extermination order, in the month of June of 1838, Sidney Rigdon says this. He says, when a county or a body of people have individuals among them with whom they do not wish to associate, and a public expression is taken against their remaining among them, and such individuals do not remove, it is the principle of republicanism itself that gives that community a right to expel them forcibly and no law will prevent it. I mean, that's Sidney Rigdon and he's in the first presidency and he's basically saying, hey, if we don't want you here, you, you got to go. When Missouri says that to us, somehow yeah. we act like victims. Yeah, It's so tough. It is. And by the way, many of these individuals that sign this document in June are Danites. And the question is, was Joseph Smith a Danite? And we link some of this stuff to the Gospel Topics essays. And the best I can tell from the historical sources, and and there's so much written on this, Joseph Smith knew that the Danites existed, but that Joseph was not aware of some of the extreme things that they were doing, but that Joseph gave tacit approval to the general idea of that we need to defend the church. We need to defend ourselves. We've already been kicked out of Jackson County, so we've got to somehow come together. He wanted to defend the church. And so it's difficult, but the dissenters do leave. One lesson the church should have learned from the Book of Mormon is when dissenters left the Nephites, guess where they always went? Guess who they always joined and aligned with? And that now becomes a problem for the Nephites. These dissenters are going to go join with the Missourians who are already nervous about the members of the church. So fueled by the dissenters, it's going to actually become an ugly situation. This situation really proved disturbing to John Corll. And John Corll was a member of the church since 1831. He's 43, and he passed through all the difficulties in Jackson County and Clay County. And so like many of his fellow saints, he risked his life to defend us. He was even in prison for a period of time. And he served in a lot of leadership capacities. Specifically, he was a counselor to Bishop Partridge. And he was able to speak to the Missourians and also work with the saints. And as a member of the church, he really represented us well. In fact, um, in 1838, he was elected to the state legislature. So he clearly was really skilled at communicating. And so during this time period, he secretly goes out to the dissenters and he warns them that some of the Danites are, are planning against them. And then this is what he says. He says, this scene I looked upon with horror and considered it as proceeding from a mob spirit. John is going to leave the church, but I also see his love for the Lord. He sees that the dissenters have to leave, and they do. They go to Richmond at this time. At this point, they're also starting to put together lawsuits to come against Joseph, and Richmond is going to be a place where there's going to be a lot of opposition against the church. And so, like Bryce said, when this happened in the Book of Mormon, they went to the enemies, and we're kind of seeing the same thing here. And so there's going to be basically three stages of what I call Danite violence. This is big picture stuff. But the first thing we're going to see is in June. 
In June, the first stage of the Danite violence is just simply telling the dissenters to leave and threatening violence if they don't. The second stage is going to be fulfilled between June and about mid-October of 1838. And that is where the Danites are just trying to protect the saints. They're trying to defend their homes as best they can. After about mid-October, the Danites start to attack back. They start to execute their own violence against the Missourians. I think the first couple of stages we can understand. The third, I think, is more difficult. And yet, we've all had experiences where we've been wronged, and then finally we snap. And I think the Danites kind of represent that part of humanity. One of the main, most militant members was this guy by the name of Samson Avard. And my take on this is that Samson used the approval of Joseph in this idea of defending, but that he took it too far. We don't know a lot about him prior to his connection to the church. We know that he was a former Campbellite preacher, and he joined the, the members of the church in 1835 and served a mission and was also a member of the Far West High Council. Although he never held top position as captain general of the Danites, nearly every source that we read agrees that he was the teacher and active agent of the society. And most sources assert that he was kind of sketchy or that he, in the words of, the, of these people that knew him, that he was a, quote, first class scoundrel. Lorenzo Young considered him to be a dishonest or hypocritical man. And then Mormon Judge Elias Higby, who served as Captain General and Avard's superior in the Danite organization, described Avard as, quote, a man whose character was the worst I ever knew in all my associations or intercourse with mankind. So Higby, as well as most Mormons, however, had little critical to say about Avard until after his disaffection with the church. The individuals that we found historically that do struggle with Avard before Avard leaves and attacks the church are going to be John Coral and Thomas B. Marsh. So John Coral and Thomas B. Marsh take this position that I do sympathize with. And the position is, how can I be a faithful member of the church, but I see this extreme branch in the church, and it almost seems as if Joseph Smith approves of some of these actions. Joseph Smith approved of the salt sermon. The dissenters leave. And so some of the Danites have this idea in their minds that they're acting under the authority of Joseph. And my contention is that Avard uses this assumption to push them to do things that Joseph would not authorize. Now, it's messy. It's complicated. History can be difficult. But know this. After Joseph is arrested, there are court cases and witnesses are brought forth. And this is important to know that after this happens, Samson Avard points the finger at Joseph and says, Joseph is commanding this. Joseph is the one. And this is where I, I disagree with him. And I say, no, I think, Samson, some of this is you. And then we get into the fog of war. I mean, what does a general really know that his people are doing in the midst of war? There's all kinds of things happening in the fog of war. And so I want to give Joseph a pass on this, but I also realize that it's complicated and it depends on who you listen to. And so that's a little bit about Samson Avard. That's a little bit about the Danites, at least as it pertains to June of 1838. We're a couple months away from the real bloodshed happening, and four of this week's Come Follow Me sections are all revealed on one day, July 8, 1838. Section 117, 118, 119, and 120, all on the same day. So allow me to pause in the discussion of the history of Missouri 
in the middle of this time period, the Lord reveals to me one of the most important messages in the Doctrine and Covenants about who He is and what He expects of us. It's a gem in section 117, and I plead with you as you read these chapters, don't get so caught up in the Mormon War and the history that you brush over what's going to be said to Oliver Granger. Oliver Granger has an impossible assignment. Like some of you receive, I know missionaries who are called to places on this earth where they know they're not going to have a whole lot of success. I have dear friends and I have students who have been called to missions where they probably will not baptize a single person. Oliver Granger was given an impossible task, and that was to sell the properties for as much as you could, to advocate for the First Presidency and sell the properties as mu- for as much as they possibly could. Well, given how much they were hated by the people left behind in Kirtland, that's going to be impossible. But Oliver Granger is going to do his very best, and the Lord's going to pay tribute to Oliver Granger in a way that I think every one of us needs to hear. The Lord says, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Wherefore, I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation forever and ever. Verse 13, let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency. And when he falls, not if, when. The Lord knew it was an impossible task, but I need it to be done, at least attempted. When he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. And I wish I could just scream that out loud to every Latter-day Saint. God cares more about us getting up when we fall and trying again than how much land we cover. He's not interested in the distance we go, but the number of times we stand back up, wipe ourselves off, and try again. When you fall, rise again, because your effort, your dedication, your sacrifice will be more sacred to God than your increase. If you get called on a mission to a land where you know you're probably not going to baptize, and you do your very best, and sure enough, you didn't baptize very many— It's the same situation, because your efforts are more important than your accomplishments, your overall accomplishments. Now, that is the God that we worship. And I don't know where this perfectionism came from in the church. I don't know why so many young Latter-day Saints struggle with this idea that they have to be perfect. They tear themselves up when they fall short. This is the different God. This is a God that says, you fell. I kind of saw that you would. Now, get back up, because your effort to rise again and try again is more important to God than what you would have accomplished had you not fallen in the first place. Bryce, I like that you point these out because it seems like this isn't just one place. No, it's all over the Scriptures, and yet somehow we have this idea that the Scriptures demand perfection. I think we see the ideal, and we all want it. And I, and I get that. Yeah. I, I love God so much, I want to give Him my very best. Yeah. But what we have to understand is that He's not worried about winning the race and getting the fastest time. 
There's no extra prizes for getting to the celestial kingdom first. It's all the same price. That verse is worth its weight in gold. It is just one of those that we have to pause in this history and hear the Lord say. Now, applying it to that history, has the church learned from Missouri? Have we gotten ourselves back up and are we moving forward smarter and better because of the mistakes that have been made in the past? You know, another thing that's interesting about section 117 is the tough position that Joseph's in. Yeah. Not all of the members of the church who stayed faithful to the church left Kirtland. Among them are William Marks and Newell K. Whitney, and the Lord is going to call them to Missouri and just basically say, look, don't envy what's a drop in the bucket. Don't worry about your properties. Let them go and come. This probably would have been difficult for Joseph to give this revelation to them because they were his friends. Joseph is in, in what I would say oftentimes untenable positions. And the Lord says, no, this is where we're going. And sometimes it's just one of those things where he has to have really difficult conversations. The Lord says in verse two, to awake, arise, and come forth and not tarry. And then a couple times in this section, we read things like, for I, the Lord commanded, or verily thus saith the Lord. This is Stephen Harper. He says, there's a fascinating dynamic to this section. No other revelation, no other scripture, in fact, uses the words Thus saith the Lord as often. Some Old Testament prophets use the phrase nearly as often, and section 124 and 132 use it frequently, but its high frequency in this section may tell us something about Joseph's awkward position. You see, these were his friends, and I can't imagine the position of having to be someone's friend, and yet the Lord is speaking directly and very pointedly to them to stop tearing in Kirtland, to stop waiting in Kirtland. That would have been difficult. So that's big picture, section 117. Section 118. So four new apostles joined the Quorum of the Twelve in section 118. Four apostles and all three witnesses to the Book of Mormon will leave the church in this time period between the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society and coming into Missouri. Somewhere between Kirtland and Missouri, the church loses four apostles and the three witnesses. Now, two of the three witnesses will return, but in section 118, we're going to replace the four and, and fill the vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And this is where two future prophets, presidents of the church, are ordained as apostles. John Taylor will be ordained, and as you heard Mike say earlier, Wilford Woodruff will be ordained at that very moment where they are laying the cornerstones and moving out to their missions. Yeah. Now, the next section is the tithing law. So going into Far West, in order to fund the new construction, now you remember section 115, Joseph was told he can't go into debt for any new temples. So build a temple in Far West, but you can't go into debt for it. So how in the world are we going to fund a temple that we can't go into debt for? Well, in this circumstance, the Lord says, let's obey the tithing law. So manifest the law of consecration this way right now, and that is to obey the tithes portion. So let's be clear here. There's the law of consecration. There's the law of tithing. It's not either or. It's not, oh, well, now the Lord gives the law of tithing, so we've eliminated the law of consecration. I remind you about section 138 versus section 42. 
In section 38, we get kind of the inner law of consecration and the inner requirements to live the law of consecration. And then in section 42, the Lord gives the outer united order, so to speak. So the law of consecration is not replaced by tithing. It's not one or the other. It's we all are under covenant to obey the law of consecration. That's an eternal law. But how we manifest that law might change according to our circumstances. In one circumstance, the Lord would say, give me all that you have and I'll return a stewardship to you that you then take care of. In another circumstance, I'm going to obey the law of consecration by fulfilling what is currently required of me, which is 10% of my income. But it all stems from the law of consecration that we are under covenant to obey. How that law is manifest can change from time to time. So currently in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 2021, we are still under obligation to obey the law of consecration, but we manifest that by paying 10% of our income annually. So this was a law given in Far West to help fund the purchase of the lands and the cities and the temples that we're now going to build in Missouri. Well, that we wanted to build in Missouri. And by the way, everything that you read in section 119 just carries over into section 120. Because we need someone to be in charge of those funds. These are sacred funds. President Gordon B. Hinckley used to keep on his desk a widow's might. And I remind you of the story in the New Testament about the widow who threw in just a teeny, teeny coin. She threw in a mite. And Jesus says, that widow has paid more into the treasury than all these rich people did because she gave of her want. She gave of her need. So President Hinckley would keep a widow's mite on his desk to remind him constantly of the widow who pays tithing. And so a council was put in charge of how we spend tithing funds. And that's section 120, the calling of a council to make sure these tithing funds are spent wisely. And I just, I, I love that this church considers it a sacred obligation to account for the tithing funds. And every single year in April General Conference, they ask an auditing firm to come in, independent of the church, to say, would you please tell the world what we have done with the tithing funds that have come in. The Council on the Disposition of the Tithes takes our tithing very serious and spends it very wisely. Yeah. And it's disposed of or taken care of or dispersed by the First President of the Church and the Presiding Bishopric, his council, and the Quorum of the Twelve. So those are the sections. We're going to continue with the history because this is what leads up to section 121, which is next week with Joseph in Liberty Jail. If you're reading the Doctrine and Covenants sequentially and you hit 119 about tithing and 120 about the council that disperses the tithing, and then all of a sudden the next section, Joseph Smith is in prison, you're going to wonder what is going on. The rest of this podcast is going to fill in the gap between this revelation of tithing and all of a sudden Joseph Smith ending up in prison. Yeah. So the next significant thing that we're going to talk about in the timeline is August 6th, and it's called the Knockdown Dragout Fight, and it's in a city called Gallatin. And the spark that ignites this is going to be an election day. Yeah. 
William Penniston and a group of his political supporters surrounded the polling booth in Gallatin, and they openly declared that they would stop any members of the church from voting. And so there's lots of different accounts of what happened here. But to be short in speaking, there was a knockdown fight. And members of the church came in, and they got clubs, and members of the, the city of Gallatin that didn't want them to vote, they brought clubs and, and whips and things, and it was a big fight. Now, the whole fight probably didn't last more than a couple of minutes, according to some accounts. But the Missourians would say things like, we stopped the Mormons from voting, and the members of the church said, nope, we stopped them from stopping us, and we voted. And it depends on which account you read, but essentially, this was the beginning of increase of violence in Missouri, and many accounts say that the Danites showed up, and a couple days later, some members of the church come to a man by the name of Judge Adam Black, and Joseph Smith is with them. Samson Avard, Joseph Smith, members of the First Presidency, they ride out between 100 and 150 men to Adam Black's home. And according to Joseph Smith's own sworn statement, I'm just going to read part of his statement. We then commenced a conversation on the subject of the late difficulties, speaking of the knockdown at Gallatin, and the present excitement. I found Mr. Black quite hostile in his feelings towards the saints, but he assured us that he did not belong to the mob, neither would he take any part with them, but said he was bound by his oath to support the Constitution of the United States and the laws of the state of Missouri. Deponent then asked him if he would make said statement in writing so as to refute the statement of those who had been affirmed that he, Judge Black, was one of the leaders of the mob. Mr. Black answered in the affirmative. Accordingly, he did so, which writing is in possession of the deponent. And that's Joseph's sworn statement. Later, Judge Adam Black is going to claim that the saints were threatening him with death if he did not sign the document. And so this is another example of the messiness of history of he said, she said. And here on one count, we have Joseph saying, hey, are you part of the mob? Will you swear to uphold the law? And then we have Judge Black after the fact saying, hey, these members of the church, they came and threatened my life. And these stories are swirling around. This is going to lead to the violence against the saints. And it's also going to lead to them retaliating. And so that's in August. Now we get to October. There's a lot of dominoes that fall very quickly in October. At the end of this, Joseph Smith will be in custody. Yeah. So on October 14th, Joseph Smith gives a sermon. And in the sermon that he gives in Far West, he quotes John 15, verse 13, that says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Joseph Smith he sees that there is going to probably be violence, and he decides to fight to the death. He says, quote, The law we have tried long enough, and as a result, have been made a set of outlaws by having no protection. Joseph said, We will take our affairs into our own hands and manage for ourselves. We have applied to the governor, and he will do nothing for us. The militia of the country we have tried, and they will do nothing. All are mobbed. The governor is mobbed. The militia are mobbed. The whole state is mobbed. We have yielded to the mob, and now they're preparing to strike a blow. But I am determined that we will not give them another foot, and I care not how many come against us, ten or ten thousand. God will send his angels to our deliverance, and we can conquer ten thousand as easily as ten. So that's according to Reed Peck. Reed Peck was there. And that's his account of what Joseph said. And there were others there that believed that 
angels would protect the saints. The Danites are trying to defend the church. And of course, there's dissenters that are saying things against the church. And we've had the knockdown in Gallatin. We have Judge Black saying some things against the church. And then we get to October 16th and 17th. And this is where we start to see a pivot. Many saints in outlying areas start to have their homes burned. And so now these individuals are now homeless and they're coming into far west and other settlements with reports that Missourians are burning down their homes. And so as this is occurring, there are many Danites that are saying, we're going to defend, but we're also going to go on the offensive. And so at this time period, we get a letter from Hiram Parks. Now, who is Hiram Parks? Hiram Parks is a general in Missouri. He writes a letter to Lyman White, and Lyman White is over and commanding many individuals who are trying to defend the church. Lyman White has served in a war, the War of 1812, and he has military experience. So this is a Missouri general writing to a defender of the members of the church. Yes. In this letter on October 16th that he writes to Lyman White, he gives him permission to defend the saints. Now, later, Parks is going to, he's going to flip. I like Parks. I think in a lot of cases he defends the saints, but it's messy. Like later he's going to say things that are perhaps considered negative. But on this day, he gives Lyman White the authority to defend the saints. He does fail, however, to communicate this letter to General Atchison. General Atchison is also in charge of a group of the Missouri militia. And General Atchison, if we remember, was also an attorney for the saints. So he's very sympathetic towards the Latter-day Saint cause, but he's also trying to follow the commands of the governor of the state of Missouri. So the first move of the saints in retaliation against this violence is going to be had on October 18th. And on October 18th, many of the Danites go into Gallatin and they burn it to the ground. And Which is where the battle, the, the knockdown battle occurred on election day. Yeah. And now we're October 18th. So a couple months later, we retaliate by going into Gallatin and burning the place down. Yeah. And they don't just burn it down, but first they go into the stores and they, they remove items from the stores, blankets and merchandise. Uh, Joseph McGee's shop is burned to the ground. According to uh, many accounts, David Patton's men retrieve a cannon that they bring in to our possession. And at this time, Gallatin is burning to the ground and it's the Danites that are doing this. Now, in their defense, the Danites are going to say, we're taking these things from the store and we're doing to you what you've done to us. We have to feed our people and you're destroying our lands and our crops and those things. But clearly on October 18th, the Danites do execute violence against Missourians. Oliver Huntington, who's 15 at the time, he sees the Gallatin raid and he says later, he says, some people might ask why we took their cattle and sheep and their honey. And he says, for this, it is plain and evident that when they had taken ours and driven all of what we had out. And as we are at open hostilities with each other, and we must have the privilege or take the privilege of retaking as much as they took from us, or in other words, we must live. And if we cannot live in peace, then we'll live in war. And if we must live in war, we must have something to eat. And so that's Oliver Huntington's account. And he clearly was an eyewitness. He's a faithful member of the church, but he's trying to give context to what both sides are doing. There's more plunder in October. 
There's another town called Millport, and it depends on which historical source you read. But the Missourians say that we burn Millport, and many of the Danites and many of the members of the church say that, no, the Missourians burn Millport. They burn their own houses. And what's fascinating to me as I read this, both sides are accusing the other side of burning their own houses down. And I have a hard time with this because in the middle of October in 1838, it's snowing. And I'm thinking if I'm living in Missouri and there's violence and it's snowing and it's cold, I'm probably not going to burn my own house down, but I don't know. I wasn't there, but everybody's saying this. So I don't really know what to do with Millport. I think it's easy to say we did what we did in Gallatin because our own people are saying it, Bryce. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And it's at this time when Thomas B. Marsh and Orson Hyde, two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, decide to secretly leave the saints on October 20th. And for some time, Thomas has been at odds with the church. And Orson Hyde, as it later developed, was sick with a violent fever. And so this may excuse his actions. But what's important to note is they take out an affidavit, which is a legal document, and it's basically like a testimony under oath. And they write this out against the church and give it to the people that take it to the governor of the state of Missouri, Governor Boggs. I'm just going to read part of that affidavit. They have among them a company consisting of all that are considered true Mormons called the Danites, who have taken an oath to support the heads of the church and all things they say or do, whether right or wrong. Many of this band are dissatisfied with this oath as being against moral and religious principles. So clearly they're counting themselves as against it. So then they say this about Joseph. This burning, the burning of these places, was done secretly and at the same meeting, I was informed they passed a decree that no Mormon dissenter should leave Caldwell County alive. And as such, if they attempted to do it, they would be shot down and sent to tell their tale in eternity. In a conversation between Dr. Avard and other Mormons, the said Avard proposed to start a pestilence among the Gentiles, as he called them, by poisoning their corn and their fruit, and saying it was the work of the Lord, and said Avard advocated lying for the support of their religion, and that it was no harm to lie for the Lord. And then he goes on, but essentially in this affidavit that is signed and documented on October 24th, 1838, and it's also signed by Orson Hyde, Thomas Marsh drafts it, and then Orson Hyde writes at the end of it, he says that most of the statements in the foregoing disclosure of Thomas B. Marsh, I know to be true, the remainder I believe to be true. Now, you can't underestimate the power of that document. That document that the governor has in his hands is from members of the Quorum of the Twelve castigating our faith. The inner circle. Yeah. And the governor at this time is getting other things, other letters. Another judge, Judge Ryland, writes a letter to the governor, and he says in this letter that the Mormons need to be removed. And another report that's given to the governor is the Battle of Crooked River. So David W. Patton and a group of members of the church get involved in a skirmish in what is historically today known as the Battle of Crooked River. Reports had come to David Patton and others that there were members of our church that were told to get out of their homes and Commander Bogart of the Missouri militia goes into these homes and he threatens members of the church, and some of them are taken prisoner. And so David Patton and his men go to rescue them. And when they do, there's there's gunfire, and three of our individuals are killed. 
uh, David Patton being among them, O'Bannon and Carter being the other two. And one Missourian is killed, a man by the name of Moses Rowland. And the Battle of Crooked River is going to be another report that's given to the governor. And rumors are flying like crazy. In fact, one rumor comes to the governor that the Mormons wiped out the entire company of men. And that's just not true. Like one Missourian died. And if you remember what we talked about, like the the zealotry, the religious zealotry happening in Salem, how rumors can just kind of take their own legs. And so as this is happening, he gets this report and he gets the report from Thomas B. Marsh, like the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, that says, hey, the Mormons, they're marching against the state. They want to take over Missouri. And Governor Boggs is then going to issue the order on October 27th, 1838, the Executive Order 44. The extermination order. Yeah. Because in it, he says that the Mormons must leave the state of Missouri or be exterminated. It's really difficult. A United States governor issued an executive order saying that Mormons must leave the state of Missouri or die, be killed. Yeah. And three days after the order had been signed... Uh, the Hans Mill Massacre occurs. The Hans Mill Massacre was devastating. And from the sources that we have, the bulk of these individuals that are executing violence against the saints are actually from a county east of Caldwell County called Livingston County. And they have not even had dealings with us. And the saints that live at Hans Mill, they, you know, they've been warned about some of this violence, but they didn't think something like this would happen. But they had a couple guards out, you know, just in case. And the idea was if they are attacked, that they could come back into the blacksmith shop and defend themselves. And these individuals who come from Livingston, very few of them communicate after the fact what happened. I mean, obviously, you can see why. You know, you go in and kill men and women and children, many of them defenseless. I could see why they don't talk about it. But one individual from Livingston County did later report why they attacked. And I found this interesting. He said, we were under the assumption that the Mormons were going to invade Livingston County and take it over. Now, I don't know where he got that. I can't trace it. But this is once again where rumors can spin out of control. And, you know, you talk about fake news. I mean, there was fake news in 1838, just like there's fake news today. And just like today, fake news can cause I mean, all kinds of problems. And so there's some great stories of faith with Amanda Barnes-Smith and some of the things that she goes through as she rescues her, her son. And we link these in the show notes and you can read these and they certainly build my faith. But the Hans Mill Massacre was devastating. 17 members of the church were killed and 14 were injured. And word gets back to Joseph. The saints are gathered at Far West, and this is where everything kind of culminates to November 1st of 1838. The saints are in Far West. Joseph wants to fight. Joseph believes that, you know, he he believes these promises of the Book of Mormon that God will defend us. And the Missourians, it's, it's a challenge because some of the commanders of the armies are very much against the saints, but some of them have empathy towards the saints and they see the humanity. And so in the process of this, there's a man by the name of George Hinkle, who's one of our military leaders. And George Hinkle wants to find a way that we can get along. He wants to find a way that we can get out of this circumstance where there is no bloodshed. And the picture I want you to have in your mind is that the city of Far West is surrounded 
and the Missourians outnumber the Saints. And the Saints, many of them are, are ready to fight. They're ready to have a, a war. And, and we have seen women and children butchered. It's, I mean, Hans Mill is weighing heavily on everyone's mind. Yeah. And so Hinkle goes to Lucas and says, what do we got to do? And Lucas basically presents him with a paper that says, hey, you need to surrender these guys and Joseph Smith's on the list. And you need to surrender your arms and you need to leave. You need to get out of Missouri. And otherwise there's going to be bloodshed. And that's, that's basically his option. And so Hinkle comes back into far West and he says to Joseph that they're willing to talk to you about terms of peace. And Joseph goes to Lucas and says, I I hear you're here to discuss terms of peace. And Joseph is informed that he's under arrest. And so historically, Hinkle's cast in a, in a horrible light, and he's called a traitor. I believe George Hinkle was trying to save lives. Now, would I have chosen that way? I don't know. I've put myself in George Hinkle's shoes many times. Would I have done the same thing and betray Joseph? But George Hinkle sees an opportunity to save lives, to end the conflict without a lot of bloodshed. Yeah. George Hinkle saved a lot of lives. Uh, it's complicated. Like Bryce said, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to interpret this. I certainly wasn't there. Now, later, Orson Hyde and Thomas B. Marsh, who wrote out an affidavit that really, you you can't underestimate the power of that document. But those two men, they come back. Thomas B. Marsh and Orson Hyde are allowed back into the church. Orson Hyde comes back and is an apostle and do great things. And we unfortunately often make George Hinkle the scapegoat here, and we pile upon George Hinkle as the villain. But we've got to remember it was members of the inner circle who sent an affidavit to the Missourians that said the church is an enemy. George Hinkle, after this experience, is called a traitor. Joseph goes to Lucas and says, I I hear you're here to discuss terms of peace. And Joseph is informed that he's under arrest. Joseph and many of his brethren are taken into custody, and they'll be transferred from Richmond to serve time in Liberty Jail to await trial. And that's the context of Section 121, is the November 1st surrender at Far West. The saints have to leave. Once again, Bryce, we're leaving in winter, and they go north to Illinois. We're not allowed back in Missouri. And this is, a to me, very much a low point historically. We went from the high point of the spring of 1836 to the darkness and devastation of the November surrender at Far West. And Joseph will spend months in prison. And it's a difficult time. And yet, B.H. Roberts, writing of Joseph in Liberty Jail, would say it was more temple than prison as long as the prophet was there. A lot of wonderful truths come out of the darkness. And I think that's typical of our faith in God, is that even at the darkest and most lowest points of our life, that God was with us in the darkness, that God was with Joseph in Liberty Jail. He will say to him, all these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. It is my testimony that in the Missouri periods of your life, when there seems to be dark clouds all around, that God will be with us. He does not abandon us. And just like Joseph Smith is going to hear those words, peace be unto thy soul, thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. What comes out of the darkness of Missouri is light. 
light that makes us better and beckons us forward. In Nauvoo, Joseph will smile and laugh and live. And I think as we close the chapter on a dark period of church history, we should learn the lessons of Missouri. We should mourn for the loss. We should weep for those who lost so much and in pain cried out to God and said, where art thou? I end with just one little story that's very personal to me. About six weeks after our number seven child was born, he was born in November, November 27th, about six weeks later, he contracted RSV, a pretty severe case of RSV. And I took him to the hospital with my wife. It was late at night, one Saturday night in the middle of a January. And the doctor came in and suctioned him out. And that little baby screamed at the top of his lungs. My wife had to be excused from the room. She couldn't hear him screaming. They put a cannula on the, on our son and eventually he calmed down. And I am holding my six-week-old son who's just been screaming at the top of his lungs as my wife walks into the room, sees a cannula on her little baby, and loses it. And now I'm trying to comfort my wife on one side and a six-week-old baby on another side in an emergency room exam room at Primary Children's Hospital deep in the darkness of winter in January. It was a hard day. A few months later, that little boy, now fully healed, happy, growing like crazy. It's now summertime. He wakes up early and I get up with him. Crack of dawn, sun just barely coming up. I took him outside and sat on a bench on our front porch as the sun was rising. And there I was holding this very healthy boy who had fully recovered from RSV. What a beautiful morning. And I was holding him in the exact same position I held him in that emergency room. And I remembered that day and how dark it was. And yet today was an absolutely beautiful summer morning and everything was better. It is my testimony that God will see us through the Missouri periods of our life. And that when we think this is dark and I don't know how I'm going to get through this, that there will come a beautiful summer morning when we will sit on that porch and everything will be better. And with that, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.